Well, a few years ago, uh, a young man came up to me after the service, and he, he shook my hand and said, hey, man, like, it's really nice to meet you. Uh, are you the guy that normally leads worship here? I am. Okay, 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 cool. Well, I've, uh, it's my first time, and I've got some questions. Right on, man. Like, fire away. First question, right out the gate, was this. How come you sing songs nobody knows? I was like, oh. And some of you are like, yeah, amen. Like, that's right. And I don't know what you're doing. Anyway. So I need you to hear something. Like, I think awkward moments are absolutely hilarious, like objectively funny. And so this was a really hilarious moment for me. I had a solid laugh. And then we had a conversation about music in the church. It's purpose, uh, what we're trying to do here at, at, at this church and, and really how Colossians 3.16 is one of the pillar texts for how we understand music and what we revolve our worship ministry around. He said, he said, hey, listen, that's great. Like, I get that. But look, man, when I was looking around during the songs, you know, not singing because I didn't know any of them, uh, nobody's singing. And I was like, well, that's, that's not, objectively not true. Like, I'm up here 50 plus Sundays a year. I'm looking out. Like, most of you are not just simply singing, but actively worshiping God uh, through song. And so, you know, I kind of told him, said, ah, I don't, I'm not sure about that. And he said, well, maybe it was just my section, but I'm not, I'm not sure that you really are reading the room right. And I was like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> By the way, I, I literally don't remember who this guy is. So if you're here today, like, I love you. Like, it was cool. Like, it was a great conversation. But then he said, can I give you some advice? And I was like, let it rip, dude. I'm all ears. So while very few folks have the boldness of this young man, they may have the same thoughts as this young man. Uh, whether, whether it's here or at another church, you're like, why are we singing these songs? Like, uh, these are weird. Like, like, imagine if you came to the church for the first time and like, like you'd never been to church before and all of a sudden everybody around you is singing, there is a fountain filled with blood. You're like, what? Like, this is a cult? What's going on? You know? So why do we sing the songs that we sing? Even more than that, why do we sing at all? And Paul helps us answer this question in Colossians 3.16. And so ultimately, we sing to proclaim, embrace, and live in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In today's text, we'll see three things. That gospel singing plants the gospel in us. Gospel singing plants the gospel in others. And gospel singing grows a gospel heart. If you remember, Pastor Jimmy preached a few, a few weeks ago at the beginning of our Colossian study and helped us understand the, the theological mess that the, Colossian, the, the Church of Colossae is in right now. They're, they're like kind of worshiping angels and they're getting advice from, they're, they're trying to, to you know, get advice and counsel from angelic beings. And so Jesus, rather than being the son of God, king of kings, the, he is just another angel to them. And, and Paul's going, no, 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 no. He's, he's, the, he's the God. He's God. He's the king. He's the center of the entire cosmos around which everything orbits. This is all about Jesus. And so that's chapter one. And then he uses the remainder of the letter to say, because Jesus is king, this is how we're going to live. Don't do these earthly, fleshly things because you've died to your flesh and you're alive in and to Christ. And he says in, in chapter three, verses 12 and 15, you need to live not according to your flesh, but as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then he says, here's how you're going to do that. And instructs them to do something we may not expect. Sing. Now, 
if we were to listen to like a podcast or read an article or get advice from someone, like the five top things you should do as a Christian to grow in, in, in holiness and grow in your walk with Jesus, we probably wouldn't expect sing to be on there. So why does Paul tell them to do it? Well, it's because gospel singing plants the gospel in us. Look with me in the, in the very first section of, the, of this verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ would be the teachings of Jesus or the teachings about Jesus. It's the story about him. But it's, it's not just these stories or, or, or specific teachings of Jesus. It's the whole story about Jesus. It's the whole scripture. It's the whole Bible. All of it uh, is about Jesus. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, the whole Bible is, is God's story of him redeeming the world from sin and death through Jesus. Every single story echoes his name. And Jesus himself confirms this after his resurrection. He meets some disciples, two of his disciples that were walking to Emmaus, and he, and, and he, he meets them. Again, this is the resurrected Christ, and they have no idea who he is. And he says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And here's this. Here it goes. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The word of Christ is the gospel. The proclamation that God is restoring his people, establishing his rule over all peoples, and Jesus is the one who's bringing it all to fruition. He's the one doing it all. And Jesus showed this kingdom through his life, his teachings, his death, and his resurrection, healing diseases and uh, curing birth defects and reversing injuries, silencing storms and rebuking evil spirits. In all these things, he displayed not only what the kingdom was like, but that he is the authoritative king of the kingdom. He is God and he is worthy of worship. So that's the word of Christ. It's the full story of what God is doing in the world through Jesus. And, and that is what is to dwell in us richly. The word dwell means to live within you, make its home in you, invade every nook and cranny of your life. And it's to live in you richly, like meaning abundantly, overflowingly. Like you think about like a, like a really rich food, like it's super intense flavor. It's so intense that it's almost overwhelming. Like you take two bites, you're like, ah, I think I'm kind of done, you know? It's all, uh, or, or if it's like, um, like think of like a sponge, right? And you, and you take that sponge into water and you squeeze it, and you slowly let it out. It's full of that water. When you pull it up, you don't even have to squeeze it or wring it out. Water is just, as a waterfall, just pouring out of that sponge. That's the kind of filling that he's talking about. That's what this richness is. That's the way the gospel or the word of Christ is to live within us. We're to be so saturated with it that it not only fills us up, but pours out of us. But why does Paul want the word of Christ to live within us this way? It's because he understands and agrees with the writer of Hebrews that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He knows that when the word of Christ infects a person, it affects how they live. It transforms them. And so Paul knows that in order for the church in Colossae to live like Jesus is king, they need to have his word living within him because the word is what changes them. 
And we, just like the church in Colossae, need the exact same thing. The truth about them and their need of the gospel to live within them is just as true for us. And so we do this in all kinds of ways, right? Like I'm doing it right now, preaching the word. We, we hear preaching every single week from the word of God. We, we then go, to, many of us go to our Bible fellowship groups where we take that word and we kind of go, okay, like, let's dig in some more. Let's figure out how are we going to hold each other accountable to this? How can we flesh this out? We read and we memorize scripture and we have personal and corporate Bible study. And all these things are good and we need to do them. But Paul is calling for the word of Christ in this text to dwell in us richly in a peculiar way, a specific way. And it's to sing it. Paul wants the gospel sung from our mouths because he wants the gospel to live in our souls. See, music is really powerful. Beyond the ability to evoke emotion, it has a profound ability to deeply embed words into our brains. The correlation between memory and music is fascinating. I spent uh, a lot of time reading neuroscience this week, which is, let me tell you, it's not something I normally do. And I'm not technical, so I didn't understand most of it, but I got the gist. Uh, there are whole organizations devoted to this very thing, the, 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 the intersection of, of music and memory in helping folks who have dementia and Alzheimer's in not only memory retention, but also in memory restoration. It's, it's, it's wild. And so earlier this week, Melissa and I, um, we, we went to an event and had a young lady come and watch our kids. And I, she was a nursing student. So I told her about all the things that I was learning. And she was like, I actually experienced that like right in front of me. And I went, oh, wow, that's cool. Tell me about that. And so uh, her grandfather, uh, sadly, had uh, very, very late stages of Alzheimer's. And it was to the point where not only could he not recognize anybody, like not even his own son in the room, uh, he couldn't even talk at this point. And so uh, one day they were visiting and his sister started playing a song that was uh, one of his favorites from, from when he was younger, a song he knew very well. And he, uh, halfway through the song, he had a moment of clarity. And he looked over at his son, said his name, and said, I love you so much. Something about that song triggered his brain to allow him to remember his son in that moment. If we, it started a far less traumatic scenario, but if we started playing your favorite song from when you were younger right now, even if you hadn't heard it in like a decade, I guarantee you by the, by the second line, you're in it and you know pretty much every word from that point. This is by God's design. This isn't just something that happens because it happens. We're designed this way. In Deuteronomy 31, Israel is about to enter the promised land that God promised them, but, but God says to Moses, even though I've done all this for them, I've rescued them from, from their enemies, they're going to abandon me and worship other gods. And here's what he says to Moses. He says, write a song, teach it to the people, so that when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. And so because the words we sing live in our hearts and minds, we must ensure that we sing the right words, the words of Christ. For that's the only word that can save us and change us to live righteously before God. Gospel-informed people are a gospel-formed people, right? And it's the gospel we want living inside of us. And that's why we sing gospel songs here. We're about God-centered worship, right? Like, that makes sense. But more specifically, we're about Jesus-centered worship. 
I don't know if you've ever noticed this, um, but we don't sing a lot of songs here that are about what we do for God. You ever notice that? We sing a lot of songs about here that are about God. And I wonder why is that? I'm, I know the answer to the question. I wasn't asking myself. This is because our worship is not primarily about what we do for God, but about what he has done for us. He has loved us, cared for us, given us life in his son. He provides for us, protects us, saves us, rescues us. And so worship being our right response to God's revelation of himself uh, has to, uh, our, our worship songs must reveal who God is because we must know God in order to rightly respond to him. And so we have God-centered songs that rightly reveal the righteousness, the mercy, the holiness, the justice, the grace, the wrath, the wisdom, and wonder of God as he's revealed himself through his word, through the scriptures. And our songs must give us the gospel because gospel-less songs lead to gospel-less people. Remember, a gospel-infected people is a gospel-affected people. When the gospel is living in us, it changes who we are. To live under the reign of Christ we must know Christ. And so we sing the word of Christ so that it can be planted deep within us. And that planted word produces the good fruit that God calls us to have. But the indwelling word isn't for only for our own benefit, but it's also for the benefit of others. So as Paul continues, we see that, continuing in the, in the, in the, in the scripture, we see that gospel singing plants the gospel in others teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So, as the word of Christ dwells in us richly or overwhelmingly, it pours out of us and into others. Teaching means to pass on knowledge and wisdom and instill doctrine into someone. Doctrine's not, not a cuss word, it's a good thing. Admonish means to carefully warn against false teaching, rebuke sin, or strongly encourage another to turn from sin. So we have a positive teaching and also a negative, if you want to call it that, warning, command here. And Paul in no way disconnects this act of singing from the act of teaching. So, so we, we read this and, and we see these things as kind of disconnected. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So teach and admonish and, uh, oh yeah, and sing too. But the Greek is better translated this way. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom with or through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He's saying that not only does the gospel, plant, gospel singing plant the gospel in us, it plants the gospel in others. Gospel singing teaches the gospel. It instructs it corrects, it rebukes, it clarifies, and it convicts. And while it is, it's, it's more than that, it's not only that, it's more than that, but we have to understand that singing in the church is inextricably connected to teaching. In his great commission to his disciples, Jesus tells them to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And so gospel singing is a great commission act. In the early church, they didn't have the full canon of Scripture. They had the apostles who taught Christ, the word of Christ. They had the authority to do that. They had preachers, pastors who, who 
uh, taught the word of God, the Old Testament. They would, they, would, they, would, they would pull Christ from there. And so look how he's the, he is the fulfillment of all of this. The Holy Spirit led them to do that. So, but one of the ways that they passed doctrine around, they passed the truth of, of God around, the word of Christ around, is they would put them to songs. They would put those truths to songs. So we proclaim the gospel, a great commission act, when we sing praise to the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. We proclaim the truth of the gospel when we testify of the amazing grace that we've received because we once were lost, but now we're found. We're blind because of our sin, but now we see who God is clearly. So when we sing, we teach. New Testament uh, scholar Gordon Fee once said, show me a church's songs and I'll show you their theology. Now, what we sing not only, not only reflects what we believe, but it also affects what we believe. The songs we sing often dictate our theology. Often what we believe about God finds its root in the songs that possess our hearts and minds. And so the songs we sing must be consistent with the word of Christ. And as Eric preached last week from Titus 2, phenomenal sermon, the, we see that the primary responsibility of a shepherd or pastor of the church of God is that he would teach what accords with sound doctrine. He must, as, second, as Paul tells his protege in 2 Timothy 2, rightly handle the word of truth. A pastor must teach the truth about God wisely with no falsehoods. Falsities about God lead to a disharmonious, disharmonious cacophony of chaos in the church. But sound doctrine makes heavenly harmony in the life of the church. So because singing and teaching are inextricably linked, as one of your soon-to-be pastors, Lord willing, I'm going to make sure that every line of our songs lines up with the word of God. Because we must have the truth about God living in us, not lies. And if a song doesn't line up with the word of God, it's gone. It's out. Bye-bye. So whether it's one that, that I've been looking at and going like, oh, let's, let's see if this is a good one for our church to sing, or whether it's a recommendation, or even one that we've done in the past, it does not mean that it's free game to go here. In fact, this, is, this has happened before. Even songs we've done in the past over greater reflection and, grow, uh, and us growing in our understanding of, of the gospel and, a, and, a, and of God, we've gone, ah, I don't know about that song. You know, maybe we shouldn't do that anymore. And I want to be clear. Uh, some of these songs have been like bangers. Like they're really, really, really good musical songs. And it hurt a little bit, you know. But regardless of how good the music is or how powerful the arrangement or beautiful the, the lyricism, if it doesn't tell the truth about God, it's not worthy to be sung by his people. Because here's the deal. I don't want to give you songs you can bob your head to. I want to give you songs you can die to. Right? Songs that hinge your hope not on an emotional experience, which music can do, but the sure word of God. Songs that reveal the full counsel of God. Songs that tune your heart to the gospel. Because if we sing half-truths about God, our voices have the lisp of the serpent in them. The father of lies who deceived Adam and Eve. And at this church, we're going to make sure that our songs are full of the word of Christ, not the word of Satan. No other word. Because we want the word of Christ living within us. Now, this 
teaching element of singing isn't just from this direction, right? It's not a one-way street. It's an all-way street. We're all doing it all the time as we sing together. It's a whole church, all-together effort that we all participate in, both as the teacher and the student, as the discipler and the disciplee. When you sing gospel songs, you're teaching the gospel. Okay, now some of you are like, he's really overselling this. I promise you I'm not. And you've experienced it, I'm sure. Here's how it works. Some of you are deeply suffering. Like real, not just physical pain, emotional pain, and everything in between, all of it. And I've watched you through tear-tinged eyes sing that my sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. And though you are deeply suffering, you can say, it is well. I'm good, because Jesus has got me. I know others who are battling against addiction. And in the throes of that struggle, they are boldly proclaiming that great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Teaching us what it looks like to not, only, to, to not only proclaim the gospel, but live in the gospel, to believe it. They show what it's like to live in light of the promise of God as they sing out the truth of God. But there's also times when we need to be taught, right? Days when you're nestled in the sin of self-righteousness, believing you're better than everybody else. You're, you're not like those other Christians over there. And you need someone to sing to your face, hey, remember, God is holy, holy, holy. And you can't stand before thee. Deeds of these poor earthen hands concede I'm guilty. Holy, I'm unholy. No hope have I to please thee. All my hope rests in is your mercy. Or there's days when you're oppressed by guilt and shame because of something you've done the night before, and you can't believe that God still loves you. You're just like, it's over. You need someone to remind you when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. And you're reminded that, yeah, you're a sinner, and guess what? God still loves you because of Christ. Believe the gospel, and we need to be called to believe it again. Or in the wake of a miscarriage or a cancer diagnosis, you need someone to remind you that because he lives, you can face tomorrow. Or when the days when the grief is so overwhelming and you don't even want to be here. You don't want to be around these people. You can't be around them. And you can't even slip out a whisper in singing. You need someone else to sing for you so that you can are reminded that Jesus is better. All right. So we looked at the content of our singing, the word of Christ, as well as the purpose of our singing so that that word dwells in us richly. There's more reasons, but for our sake today, that's it. We've seen how we teach one another through, the singing, through singing the word of Christ. But now, it comes to how are we to sing with pretty voices. It's not true. Make a joyful noise, not a, not a, not a pretty one. No, we see that gospel singing grows a gospel heart. Moving on in the verse. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
So Psalms here is referring to the Psalms, the giant book in the middle of your Bible that was the official hymnal of uh, the, the, the Hebrews, the, the, believers, the people of God, and the early church. So remember, many of the believers in Colossae were Gentiles. They, 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 they weren't privy to the oracles of God. They didn't grow up with God and have this great legacy with God. They were grafted in later. So the Psalms would have taught them the wonder, the majesty, the fury, the goodness, the terror, the grace and justice of God throughout the ages. Hymns and spiritual songs are simply gospel songs. They're, Paul's point isn't to go like, here's three different kinds of songs. You need to make sure you, that your worship service is, is equally balanced with all three. That's not his point. These aren't categories of songs for us to try to figure out. His point is it's a whole host of gospel songs, a variety of styles of songs that focus on Jesus. And then Paul commands them to be thankful in their hearts. Isn't that a weird thing to be told how to feel? Like, like we assume thankfulness is a feeling. Oh, thank you so much. I feel warm and fuzzy on the inside, right? It's a command. It's weird to be commanded that. Isn't that just like something we feel? But something that's fascinating about this word in the Greek, thankfulness, is that it's actually the same word for grace, charis. Sing with grace in your hearts to God. How do we do that? Because grace is undeserved favor. It's a blessing that you didn't earn. Paul is reminding the church that you're standing before God as holy, righteous, perfect, pure, and beloved has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. Charis, or grace, here describes the proper response to grace. Thankfulness. God has shown us immeasurable kindness through his son, Jesus Christ. We are rebels who've we, we've gone our own way. We're like, I don't, whether you think you've done this or not, you have. I don't need God. I'm going to lead myself. I got this. You created me, great, but I think I can handle it from here. That's not, that, I need you to understand, there's no greater offense to God than rejecting the authority of his son. And we believe, believe that we can do uh, this life apart from him. The one who gave us life. We're like, yeah, we don't need you anymore. It's goofy. But that's what sin does. And because of that, we deserve nothing but wrath for our sin. And what he's done is he's grabbed us from death and given us life forever with him in the sun. Uh, my youngest, Josiah, is right around a year and a half. So he's in that phase of life where he wants to do big boy things but he does not have the wisdom to do those things. We have a fire pit in our backyard where we regularly burn boxes, not trash, boxes. And he loves that fire pit. In fact, sometimes he'll literally go into, like he'll find a box in the house and he'll like pull it outside and throw it in the fire pit. Then he pulls it back out and gets ash all over himself and everywhere else, but that's beside the point. He thinks it's the coolest thing in the world. So one day I was burning a whole lot of boxes and uh, he thought, that's just amazing. He likes to stand there and watch. But he doesn't just like to watch. He likes to uh, experience it very tangibly, right? And so, and, and it, was, it was way too many boxes. It's not a very big fire pit, and the flames were really tall. Not a good idea. And for a split second, I turned around to go and grab more boxes because it was, you know, starting to go down a little bit. And, I mean, the second I turned, he, boom, makes a beeline for that fire. And I yelled immediately, no, stop. 
and he doesn't care, even though he knows what that word means because we've worked on it a lot. So he keeps going towards the fire. And, uh, and so I sprinted over to him, picked him up, grabbed him away, looked at him like, what are you doing? You know, I didn't really say that. I was just like, oh my gosh. So you and I are the one and a half year old. <laughs> we run happy as can be towards hell. Embracing sin, self-interest, self-promotion, and self-governance, we constantly run from God. Even believers, we find ourselves drifting. Don't you feel that? Rejecting his good authority in our lives. And what did God do in response to our rebellion? Colossians 1, starting in 19. For in him, that being Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. That's grace. You who deserve hell, get heaven. You who want life apart from God, get God in the gospel. And that's why we're to be thankful. So we respond to God's, God's grace with thankfulness in our hearts to God. So the heart, biblically, is the center of, your, of who you are. It's, 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 it's your whole life. It's your whole being. It's your affections and your emotions, yes. But it's also your will, your mind, your desire, your passions. Everything we do and everything we are is to be a thankful response to God for his grace. But why are we commanded to be thankful? Shouldn't this just be a natural outflow of the gospel? Like, oh, I'm saved, I'm thankful, boom, done. Yeah, sure, it's supposed to be. But Paul knows something about us. He knows that our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. So our song must be, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And this is why Paul is so adamant about getting the gospel into us and it living in us. Because when the grace of God fills our whole heart, we will live for God with our whole heart. And we'll sing to God with our whole heart. Think of Old Faithful in Yellowstone, that big massive geyser, the pressure builds and builds and builds underneath uh, the earth. And once that pressure gets to a point where, it can't, where, the, where the ground can't contain anymore, boom, it explodes into this gloriously beautiful display. As the word of Christ dwells in us richly and by singing the gospel, the gospel pressure builds up and we explode in wholehearted thankfulness to God. Singing not only teaches us the word of Christ, it allows us to experience the word of Christ. It allows us to passionately praise the living God. It's a meeting ground where one's heart, body, and mind are all working together to exalt the name of Jesus. Congregational worship, congregational singing is a very in intellectual act. We are really, you gotta really think about what's going on here. But it's also a heart act. Our affections are stirred. It's a physical act. We are using our voices and our bodies to project the gospel out. It's a practical outflow of the command we're given to love God with, our heart, with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And as we sing the gospel, we're reminded of the gospel. So it comes out, comes, it goes out, comes back in. And the truth of the gospel penetrates our hearts, producing a right 
thankful response, which causes us to sing with greater fervor. So this is just a cycle. Proclaim the gospel through song. It comes back in, warms the heart. Proclaim the gospel louder. And it, it stirs our affections for God. When something is praiseworthy, we praise it. Glenn Pruitt is a huge Patriots fan. And if you talk about football and you talk about Patriots, you don't have to tell him, hey, tell me why, you, tell me why the Patriots are the greatest football team in the world. He'll tell you. He'll tell you a lot. And we're all like this. What we love, we praise. We delight in praising what is praiseworthy. In fact, our joy is completed by praising the thing that's praiseworthy. C.S. Lewis wrote that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. And in the same way, we do that in congregational singing. God is the most praiseworthy being. He deserves all our praise. He lovingly gives himself for us to complete our satisfaction and joy. So we praise what we enjoy, and our joy is incomplete without praise. So our enjoyment of God must result in his praise for it to be complete. Praise is the completion of joy, and it's the gospel the reality of sinners to be reconciled to God, the word of Christ that compels our praise. Singing is a manifestation of our joy, and it's a way for us to delight in God and what he's done for us. So there's two people that need to be warned. The Stoic statue and the fervent zealot. The Stoic statue, you can kind of guess what that is. It's someone who is dispassionate. When, 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 the, when the church is singing, they're like, I couldn't care less. Now look, I'm going to be very clear. Some of you are chill people, okay? Like you're, you're not real expressive, but that doesn't mean your heart is not warmed to the gospel. I want to be clear about that. But this is a person, they, you know, they, they, they talk about, like, I, just, I hate singing, like, I'm not good at it, or singing is for, like, emotional people. The reality is that the reason they don't sing is because they're spiritually dead, and dead people don't sing. Then there's the other person. The fervent zealot, are, these are the people that are like lifting their hands, they're screaming out the words, whether they're on, in key or not is irrelevant. Looks like they're ready to sprint through the church building. Some of you have somebody in your mind right now. They look like they're passionately enraptured in the love of God. But if you were able to take a spiritual x-ray of their heart, you would see that their heart is just as cold and dead as the stoic. And instead of worshiping Jesus, they actually are just worshiping the kick drum. Every time the bridge happens, boom, hand up. If you do that, it's fine. As long as it's the word of Christ that you're responding to. You feel me? So both are spiritually mute because they don't have the word of Christ living within them. And the reason they don't have the word of Christ living within them is because they've never trusted Christ to make them alive. Their only hope is to trust Christ to save them. And so, what's your experience in singing the gospel? Do you have a thankful heart? Do you delight in God by singing his praise? Are your affections for the Lord stirred when you consider that though our sins, they are many, his mercy is more? If the gospel's grabbed you, then sing out God's praise in full-throated gospel singing. Look, you have full and open access to the throne room of God. Like he's right there calling you, saying, come, worship me, enjoy me. 
and he delights in hearing our praise. And here's what's wild, is he also delights in singing. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. Isn't that wild? To think that God delights in us and he sings over us? In Christ, God delights in you. So church, sing out the gospel. <laughs> Boldly go before our God and delight in his goodness. Just enjoy it. Let these metal walls and rafters of this building shake with the gospel thunder erupting from our throats as we embrace the gospel and experience the gospel together.